frighten us by telling us the facts, 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 the facts. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. For 91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware, I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on February 6, 2017, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Jonathan and Greg joined me to discuss congressional Republican proposals on replacing the ACA and what actions they have taken so far on other issues. That's coming up in just a moment. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me in studio again this week is Jonathan Cohn. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. And joining us on the line from Washington, D.C. is Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, Bill. Hi, everybody. Uh, So a few weeks back, we had Greg on the show uh, to talk about, you know, health policy stuff. Uh, So we want to have you back on the show to talk about health policy again. We got some very good reviews from those episodes as well, just like... uh, uh, some of our other recent episodes. We want to keep that train rolling. Um, this is certainly like foremost on people's minds, I think, uh, or a lot of people's minds um, in terms of like big picture sort of stuff besides coming out of the Trump White House, right? You know, so things that are that are mainline Republican aspirations is the dismantling of the health reform. Um, and we talked in those past episodes, which you can check out at arsenalfordemocracy.com or find on iTunes. Uh, we talked about kind of uh, what we'd like to see succeed the Affordable Care Act to move us in the right direction uh, and what we could end up seeing from Republicans kind of going in the opposite direction. Um, but a lot of that was sort of conjecture on the Republican side. Um, now, the Republicans seem not to have still they still haven't figured out how to congeal around one proposal. Um, but there are there do seem to be a number of relatively concrete proposals that we can actually talk about at this point. Um, the sort of like libertarianish end of the spectrum is uh, Rand Paul's, you know, three point plan that basically sounds like a Podesta tweet on ISIS where it's like, uh, step one, legalize the sale of cheap health insurance. Oh, you mean like the goal of health insurance? Right yeah. I, and what he actually <laughs> means by that, to clarify, is, is yeah, basically right. underregulated catastrophic insurance plans with very high deductibles. Uh, there are already pretty high deductibles that are legalized under the Affordable Care Act, but they are lower than like the 10,000 limit before. Second is uh, health savings accounts, um, which I think we've talked a little bit about before, but we can probably go into some more depth about that. They're bad. I, for one, have never seen a problem that I did not believe could be solved by a tax-free savings account. <laughs> Um, and then uh, the third uh, pl- the third point is basically allow people or allow individuals to sort of form groups together to negotiate for better insurance, which I think most of us would call an exchange, if you will, <laughs> um, but less organized and definitely less powerful negotiating ability with insurers i don't know it's a weird it's it's like a it's like a stateless exchange i guess you would put it basically um and hard to see how that would really work out but the uh bill you could you could form an exchange with your iron man reading club that's true that's probably who he's got in mind (laughs) more concrete though or at least like a a relatively well thought out proposal from the perspective of the Republicans anyway, is the Cassidy bill. Uh, This was put forward by a uh, doctor who is also a U.S. senator from Louisiana, uh, Cassidy, former member of the House of Representatives, 
Um, and uh, a, f- a few other folks had signed on to it, like Susan Collins from Maine. Um, and this is sort of seen. Uh, I don't. Greg can go over some of the uh, others, but Johnny Isaacson from Georgia, uh, Shelley Moore Caputo from West Virginia. Those are the the remaining two that were uh, co-signers. Which I think is an interesting like. Sponsors. I think it's an interesting combination of states there because they're not states per se that are in danger of going. You know, suddenly flipping all their representation to the democrats or something like that but they are relatively vulnerable due to unique attributes of the state someone you know west virginia is very conservative but some of those conservatives are still in the democratic Mm -hmm. party and if they don't feel like the people quote-unquote are being represented they may end up sort of electing a conservative tribune from the democrats to represent them um georgia is kind of trending toward the democrats Mm -hmm. depending on the election cycle maine is always kind of you know a purplish state that's you know collins herself may not be vulnerable but that's only if she continues to do sort of moderate ish things and the democratic party doesn't actually invest in the challenge yeah um, and then, you know, Louisiana has become relatively solidly, you know, Republican in the post-Katrina era, but they did elect a Democrat governor, uh, you know, and, and, and so the Medicaid expansion, a big part of that. right. And, and yeah. And so there, there are these states where like certain elements of the Affordable Care Act reforms overall tend to be like somewhat popular. So they're willing to like maybe consider some sort of a compromise. Um, but Greg, why don't you give us kind of the overview on what the specifics, uh, uh, not the super duper specific details, what, you know, I gave the three points from Rand Paul for his plan. What, what are the big headline points from the Cassidy proposal? Well, there, there, uh, so the, the Cassidy proposal essentially has three big points too, or at least three choices that the states can make. So first of all, the formal name of it is called the Patient Freedom Act of 2017, which sounds great. Like, of course we want patient freedom. Anyway, uh, and this is something that Cassidy has done routinely um, throughout the last couple of years, especially when, you know, the the ACA was on uh, shakier footing in the, uh, the Supreme Court. Um, is to sort of like offer these uh, Republican alternatives. The alternative that he's offered this time, while not, I guess, the, the bill itself is probably not more complex than the Affordable Care Act, which was, you know, thousands or uh, over a thousand pages, not several thousand, but over a thousand pages. Uh, this probably creates a even more complicated healthcare system than the Affordable Care Act because the three states that are available, I mean, the three choices that are available to states are essentially the first one is you can pretty much keep the Affordable Care Act with some caveats. There's, you know, a partial repeal of some of the um, more, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Detestable things of the Affordable Care Act on behalf of the Republicans. Then a second thing that states uh, may do is um, they adopt uh, a different sort of approach, which uh, goes into uh, subsidized Roth HSAs, uh, health sa- Roth health savings accounts, which we can get into a little bit later. And then the third thing that the Cassidy bill offers states uh, is that they can just reject the form uh, the reform altogether. Um, I'm going to be would the using, third would the third uh, one be going back to the as close to the status quo pre 2010 as possible or what? It's it's not super clear to me exactly what rejecting the form altogether reform altogether would look like. I think that that may be the assumption. Um, one of the things that's really helped me understand this bill because, you know, the, it, like I said, it's very complicated, is um, Tim Jost, who writes for Health Affairs and has sort of been my lodestar in uh, all health policy, as long as I've worked in health policy, has a really, really good, good summary of the bill, like he always does, has good summaries. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe we can provide that to people if they want to take a, a closer look at it. And then also, you know, that provides links to the bill itself and the summary that was wit- written, um, you know, by Senator Cassidy and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to be like drawing upon that a lot to sort of get my bearings and also to provide you guys with with bearings. Greg, when you're talking about some of the p- provisions being repealed and you're saying that they're like say detestable it wasn't sh- 
clear to me if this was detestable things in the Affordable Care Act or detestable things in the Affordable Care Act viewed from the perspective of a Republican senator. Viewed from the perspective of a Republican senator. Although certainly, as we've talked about before, there are things in the Affordable Care, the Affordable Care Act that people don't like, but mm-hmm. people that understand the Affordable Care Act and understand that the things that people do like about the Affordable Care Act need to be preserved know that these things that are maybe like less palatable need to exist. And so like one of those things is the individual mandate. Um, another one of those things is. And does this um, repeal the individual mandate? Yeah, mm-hmm, it would. Okay. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah. In, in, in short, yes, it would repeal. It would repeal the individual mandate. Uh, okay, so to recap, though, the three points are basically there's their sort of halfway point plan uh, that states can opt into uh, and would be opted into by default if they take no action. So that states that have a gridlock issue or a party control issue probably would end up in that. The second thing is that if the states do take action, they stay with the current system uh, with the Affordable Care Act, more or less. Um, and then the third option is going as close to the pre-reform phase as possible. So they've, so, so branch one is move forward in a Republican direction. Branch two is continue on the current democratic direction without much change. And branch three is go backward. So one, one clarifying question again, uh, when you were talking about, uh, the states having the ability to decide this is is this something that would need to be ratified by a state legislature or is it a gubernator a, a governor's ability to make the decision that's not super clear to me i think that it would have to be ratified by the 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 state legislature but obviously this is like a very very early version yeah. of the bill so there may be some changes to it and one of the reasons that i say it's a very very urgent um early version of the bill. It's like this Frankenstein's monster at this point right now, I think in an effort to get Democrats to sign on, especially Democrats from states that will presumably, you know, move forward with the uh, the pared down version of the Affordable Care Act in their states. It's like an, an effort to get them to sign on board, but they may need to make some concessions for, for Democrats, um, especially because at this point, it's looking like while they can uh, sort of semi-repeal the Affordable Care Act through reconciliation, as we talked about on a previous episode, that they're going to have to have Democratic support in order to have a repeal and a replace um, with the Republican bill that you know doesn't throw the entire system into this death spiral. And so this is an example of that where they're you know, making some concessions off the at the very, you know, beginning of this to Democrats in order to get them to sign on so that they can have a replace bill. The gubernatorial versus legislature thing is actually really significant considering the fact that like a state like Pennsylvania or a state like Minnesota, if the legislature had to be involved, the legislatures in both states are Republican, where the gover- whereas the governors are Democratic. This is why that was the point that I wasn't making initially, which is that the take no action option favors the Republican branch in this three-branch proposal because if you have a divided state, you know, where the legislature and the governor don't agree with each other on which action to take or it's unclear who has the authority to make that decision, which was a question with a lot of the Medicaid expansions, then they're going to, by default, trip into the Republican proposal rather than the, the Democratic Yeah, because there, there are very few states w- with full Democratic control. And then some where it's close, some people can be swearable, but for the most part, it's not a good picture in state yeah. legislature. I do agree with Greg, though, that I, I think that this proposal is specifically designed to try to get the Democrats to break the sort of wall that Obama had literally come and met with them before leaving office and asked them to like hold the line and not contribute any votes to like reform or replace. Um, And you know that this would, this is designed to, to to take the senators from the really democratic States that, you know, where the ACA is like much less controversial and is much more popular and to say, look, you have an option. You, If you vote for this, your state will get to keep it. And it's sort of like the, if you like your plan, you can keep it. Um, but on a macro scale. 
And and that's what they're they're hoping to, like, break the resolve of the Democrats uh, on this point. Now, you know, Jonathan is firmly in the camp of saying, no, they absolutely should not provide any of the votes for this. If this is if this is the plan that Republicans want to go with, they should supply the votes to pass this plan on their own. But they probably won't because it does include these concessions to the Democrats. Um you know, and and I guess like the case, the the case that you would that you would make in favor of Democrats doing this is like, well, some repeal is definitely going to happen, so it's better if at least some states have the thing. But but you're you've made as you've made on many episodes the sort of universal argument. So uh, yeah, for the simple fact is if if Democrats have as a party have a commitment to universal health care, it's it's murky if they do, right? But if if that's supposed to be the, the accomplishment of the Affordable Care Act, it needs work. It it made so that universal insurance was in near was near reach with that. Um, even though there are issues with the quality of insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Democrats should not be pushing in the opposite direction. It's Democrats have taken far too long to talk about moving forward past the ACA. And they do themselves no good if they join hands with Republicans and say, OK, let's take an axe to the bill that we're, we touted as our biggest accomplishment in years. Right. That they're, you know, and I think this like I'm a, I'm always reminded to, you know, you'll get people, especially in New England states or whatever, maybe California, who will after, you know, whether it's the 2000 election or the 2004 election or the 2016 election, you know, kind of half jokingly being like, well, we should just partition yeah. the country and leave, you know, or take all our tax dollars with us or whatever. And, you know, the, the counter argument that people like me always make, which is the same argument that we made in 1860 and 61. Yeah. Is, you know, uh, and, and a lot of New Englanders did is no, like it's our job to, you know, offer the vision that we want to offer for the entire country and to get them on board with that. And we don't get to leave people behind. I mean, there's definitely like a ton of Democrats and very vulnerable people exactly. in a lot of these states that have Republican control or Republican senators or whatever. And, and the, you know, the, the sort of the traditional Massachusetts view is like it's our job to evangelize the these platforms and principles that we want to see spread through the rest of the country. And we don't get to leave people behind because yeah. it's inconvenient or hard work. Um, and so I guess that would be the case here is like, don't don't help the Republicans roll back a goal and, and if like, your goal is that everyone should have insurance, if not actual care. And here's the thing as well with that. Like, right. So if you're in a Democratic state, like if things go bad, that like you can probably provide the votes in your state to create to like mimic the Affordable Care Act in your state. Right. If things got pulled. If they get pulled for everybody, all the other states where they can't do that are screwed. Right. So it's a very kind of almost like selfish from a state perspective, like perspective to say that, well, well, we're going to be okay with this. But like, screw Mississippi. Oh, it's, it's totally diabolical. I mean, it's like it's such a good concession right out the gate because it's preying on these uh, these senators from, you know, states like Massachusetts that are like, well, you know, maybe this wouldn't be that bad. And at least for us. And so maybe we could go forward with it. What it seemed to me just when I saw that Susan Collins was a lead sponsor is that Susan Collins relies on a reputation of moderation. And it seemed like part of it was designed for certain Republicans to have a cover for themselves. Insofar as that they probably don't see the thing as actually passing, but they want to be able to say that they tried. Mm. Probably. Um, now, I want to ask you, Greg, uh, and and Jonathan, you can also weigh in if you you know are, are have any awareness of uh, the sort of current state of affairs. Uh, do we have any sense of where the Republicans are internally at this point on on the Affordable Care Act? Um, is there any hints that that you know that they have are, are circling around some unified plan or or you know con contrast? I think that some. Democrats are constantly on the lookout for that, you know, the 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 breakaway Republicans that are going to suddenly throw up their hands and say, no, actually, the ACA is good and we're going to keep it. I've I've seen the error of my ways and I repent and we're not going to, you know, repeal this and replace. Um, I, I in my guess is that it's there's a very likely scenario where they just repeal everything and don't do any replacement because they, because they can agree on repeal and they can't agree on replace. Yeah. Um, but do you guys, I mean, Greg, uh, have you seen any indications of, of where Republicans are on any of this? I mean, I think those are the two factions, the ones that you mentioned, that there's basically a faction of Republicans that are like, 
we need to get rid of the ACA as quickly as possible. We're going to repeal it, whether through reconciliation, and then we will deal with uh, the ramifications of that, especially not having um, a replace mechanism immediately uh, in the future. And I think especially because they're talking – I think some Republicans are willing to play this sort of brinksmanship game where we get rid of the ACA, we cut the legs out from like under the uh, the healthcare system, then Democrats are going to have to come to the table in order to salvage whatever we have left of our healthcare system. So there's that camp. And then there's the other, I guess, more moderate camp that says like, no, 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 no. We can't get rid of the ACA until we have a repeal. That's, I mean, we can't repeal the ACA until we have a replace that's irresponsible. Those are the two camps. They haven't really coalesced around one plan. I mean, there's the there's the better way plan. I think that we've talked about before that uh, Speaker Ryan has. There's uh, the Tom Price plan, uh, who is potentially going to be the new um, Secretary of Health and Human Services. There's this new Cassidy bill. Uh, th so there are a lot of options on the table. I haven't really seen anybody any of the Republicans coalesce around one plan over the other. I just think that they're sort of in two camps in terms of strategy. One is repeal immediately. One is no, we can't repeal until we know we can replace. Is there any indication at all of Republicans breaking ranks and flat out saying like, no, we shouldn't back away from this repeal goal? No, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's more. It's, no, it's more more so just ones that are that are really insistent on having something to replace it with. Because yeah. that's the, the a number of the Republicans who are in districts that went like narrowly for Clinton or like that they themselves only won narrowly are the one are sometimes hesitant about going just like doing repeal then replace. They want they even though they had no problem voting f voting for the kind of the budget that was setting the kind of setting repeal in motions, they don't they're they're antsy about moving forward if they don't have something to point to because they know that they'll hear from that they will hear from constituents and that they could face trouble in 2018. I think that's probably an accurate assessment of the situation. Yeah, I, you know, and I haven't personally seen anything indicating that there's any breakaways. Uh, I just you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of among among Democrats. And we're talking about base Democrats here, not like elected officials among Democrats who are like big fans of the Affordable Care Act, like don't want to hear any criticism of it, think it's the greatest thing since 1965 or whatever. I think that a lot of them are liable to latch on to any indication that that Republicans are seeing the light finally, um, you know, and, and I, I'm I'm talking my way around it here, but definitely had a conversation where someone was insisting that, you know, there's no chance that this is going to get repealed or whatever. And I guess that's a different question, though, than than a specific citation as this person was making of, of someone that supposedly was breaking ranks on this. Um, Who was the person believed to be breaking ranks? I have no idea. That's and that's I haven't found any evidence of that, which is kind of why I was floating this question. But but I guess, as I said, it is a different question, which I can pose to both of you as well, which is, all right, so there's disagreement on what to replace it with. There's probably relatively broad agreement in the caucus that they can't just repeal it because that would just be too much chaos. Maybe. No, I think that there's there's a problem. No, I think there are Republicans who are more than happy to just do that. Yeah. I don't think that that's a. I don't think there's a consensus that that's a safe yes, option. Not a consent. Okay, that's fair. Yes. And that's a fair yes. assessment. That I, yeah, that that it's not in the majority, but it's a. A sign and not insignificant fact. Yeah, and while I and while I don't think that they're going to ever make a concrete decision of like let's not repeal this because we don't have a replacement, I am starting to wonder. And I I recognize we're only in the first week of February here, or you know second week or so. Is there going to be an inertia problem here where they just keep going around and around and around on what to replace it with and never actually get around to doing the repeal part in this? term or at least this year yeah like the fact of like will they ever actually move to reconciliation with the budget that, that they passed which is actually the fy 2017 budget right it's the budget for the year we're currently in they wanted mm -hmm. to do two in the one year and they still haven't passed the budget for this current fiscal year yeah and i mean certainly from the white house perspective we we in the health policy community felt like we've feel like we've kind of been in a holding pattern uh pattern with respect to health, the health care question, because the Trump administration has been so fixated on uh, the immigration question over the first couple of weeks of the administration. And 
if you'll recall during the campaign, people were talking about we're going to have a repeal by January 21st. That's what people were saying about the Affordable Care Act, that it's going to be repealed by January 21st, which is day one, right? And now, I mean, we still haven't seen that. I haven't really seen Donald Trump talk at all really about health care or this Affordable Care Act question. I mean, you guys may correct me if I'm wrong. He said a lot, but I haven't seen that he said anything at all if he said anything about the Affordable Care Act and I, I think the, the he made a few comments about like we need to get it done quick or something like that on I, Twitter, but like nothing. There's no he, concrete indication of his yeah, thinking or anything. Yeah, they're preoccupied uh, with the other what? stuff. We're gonna we're gonna go to a break now, but when we come back, I I do want to talk about this this holding pattern issue that Greg has just raised, um, which is on the one hand, on some issues they don't seem to be moving anywhere near as fast as we thought they were, and there's been a few actual victories it seems like against them. Uh, on the other hand, there's been a number of areas where they have definitely moved forward rapidly and i also think that they're probably going to continue to move forward so uh, we'll be back in just a moment from arsenalfordemocracy.com and wvud please stick around you're still listening to arsenal for democracy i'm your host bill humphrey still in studio with me is jonathan Cohn on the line from uh, Virginia is Greg. So what we've been talking about in the first half of the show is basically the various competing and non-congealed proposals from the Republicans on how to deal with health care. And one of the things that Greg brought up uh, before the break is this idea that uh, we thought that, you know, they were going to have uh, legislation ready for him to sign on day one or whatever. Um, and that doesn't seem to have happened. But I don't think that's cause for, like, getting complacent about the situation. Um so uh, what are some things that Republicans have gotten done? What are some things that, that they've been a little bit slow on? Uh, and what are some things that they seem to have already dropped uh, right off the bat? I was really encouraged by the uh, Washington Post coverage of Jason Chaffetz withdrawing his yeah. legislation on uh, turning over federal lands in a bunch of Mountain West states like Utah, where he's from, um, turning over a lot of uh, supposedly unused federal lands back to the states. I don't think that his bill was as dramatic as all federal lands being transferred to the states. He was claiming that it was just the like the useless bits or whatever. Um, But, you know, and this is something that he's filed that bill like every time that he's, you know, every term that he's been in, in the House. Uh, and he and he pulled back on that um, because he basically got backlash from people in those states saying mm-hmm. that they want the federal government to be in charge of these lands. They don't want them turned over to the states or private yeah. corporations, which is what would happen. Uh, and he was hearing from a lot of, you know, people who like to go fishing or hunting on those lands. Um, that was really positive and encouraging to me, I think, because there's a lot of like trends in the Mountain West. And, you know, in order to campaign effectively there, you either have to convince people that the government is their enemy and the corporations will save them, or you have to convince them that the corporations are the enemy and the government will save them. Uh, and we, you know, one of the parties goes one way on that and one of the parties goes the other way. You have to then capture the prevailing mood and figure out. Uh, which one's going to control it right now. It's been broadly controlled by Republicans. Maybe we're seeing kind of a turn of the tide there. However, on the other hand, it's not like Jason Chaffetz is pulling back his uh, D.C. interference yeah. legislation. So weirdly, he is weirdly fixated on this whole idea of like there shouldn't be federal land almost. I mean, his D.C. idea, as you alluded uh, to, was we're going to give – like Maryland part of DC, which, you know, I'm from Maryland and even I don't want that. I don't, come on. Like My, that's, it's, the I only way it's that... actually sort of instructive about like the pushback that he received in the mountain West region about like, you know, trying to pull the same thing that like maybe we can apply here to put the same sort of pressure on him to make him drop that idea as well, because that's not going to fly. We want DC statehood. We don't want to be part of Maryland. Come on. Well, it assumes that that would get well. Granted, they could put things on a rider on an appropriations bill that Democrats would vote for, but that's not. I doubt something like that. What he's pushing would get sixty votes in the Senate. Um, the only way I think it would make any sense to add DC to Maryland is in a plan that combines the Dakotas and adds Puerto Rico as a state. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> okay, I don't know what to do with that information because we need <laughs> to keep fifty. Do we? Do we? I, I we have the the flag looks nice with fifty. All right, that's a I've dumb reason. All right, let's fifty one stars and it looks nice. All right, let's move on. But but, but it's, it's a, um, on the other hand though, 
<laughs> on the other hand, though, there was there were some legislative areas that were certainly not victories, and I know Jonathan wants to talk about this especially. Um, the basically rollback on ability to pollute streams when you're doing yeah. like mining activities. Uh, that was a huge <laughs> thing that was uh, kind of debated early in the Obama years. Um, you know, and I was certainly involved in some of that stuff. Um, but basically the idea is like, there was a big problem, especially with mountaintop removal mining in states mm -hmm. like, uh, Kentucky or West Virginia, or even potentially Wyoming, where they would blow the top off the mountain, get the coal out and then just leave the rubble like in the streams. And then there's also just general issues of like mining, contaminating mm -hmm. streams and things like that. Uh, so they had the, there, eventually there was a regulation put into yeah. place on that, but what was the kind of timeline of events there and, and how was this rolled back? So, yeah, so I, I can't speak to exactly the whole spread out of the process by which the rule was implemented, but I can speak to the to the rollback. Since over the last week, the Republicans have taken advantage of something called the Congressional Review Act, uh, which was a provision in a 1996 bill. I forget the formal title of the bill. It was like also known as the Contract of America, whatever, Act of 1996, coming out of the Republicans' campaign in 1994. And... It was the, the, the kind of the omnibus bill which it was in, passed the Senate on voice, unanimous consent, and only faced a kind of a small left-wing opposition in the House. I just remember I had looked at the vote, and I know Sanders had voted no, Nancy Pelosi had voted no, Xavier Becerra had voted no, kind of people from the left-wing of the Democratic caucus. And then, so, the Congressional Review Act hasn't really been used for the most part. What, it, what the Congressional Review Act does, it says that within 60 days of when a federal federal like one of an agency's rule is added to the federal register and is formally imp implemented congress can take up a simple resolution of disapproval and by like and, and by a simple majority vote repeal the regulation and that's only happened once before this year which was on this rule which was on a labor department rule on ergonomics that was repealed in 2001 but republicans are looking to use this much widely and this 60 legislative days can go pretty far back given the fact that the late summer and fall, Congress wasn't in session. So the the what Congress has managed to do so far, what are so yeah so there have been I believe four different resolutions of disapproval passed in the House. Two of them have already passed the Senate. the The first two that have been done were the Stream Protection Rule, uh, which Bill mentioned, which has to deal with mountaintop removal mining, particularly in terms of making sure that streams aren't being kind of aren't being polluted by by coal mining and the land is being preserved and so that things look no worse than when they started. Uh, and that was easily repealed. There are a few Democrats who voted for that in the Senate as, and well, as well as I think I believe it was four Democrats in both houses voted for it. And there were a few Republican dissenters in the house. I think, I believe Susan Collins voted no, but after voting to move it forward in the Senate. So it's her wanting to have both ways as she likes to do on, on a number of policy things. And then there was the rule from Dodd-Frank, uh, called the resource protect the sorry, the resource extraction rule, which had to deal with making sure that mining companies, oil companies, etc., had to disclose their payments to foreign foreign governments, since they're kind of a long history of oil companies bribing like bribing dictators in the third world, yada yada. And so this was saying you have to actually make this information available, like you have to actually report this for the sake of having like good governance and transparency, despite the fact that that was a rule coming out of Dodd Frank passed in 2010 it only entered the federal register last year because of how much of a long drawn out rulemaking process at the sec which of course has to deal with a lot of the companies themselves trying to water it down and fighting it and dragging things out so that was now that's now been kind of voted on by both houses and just i don't know if trump has signed it but he will and so it's either signed or a waiting signature the other two uh that the house had taken up one was about a, a Department of Labor rule that had to deal with kind of not giving tax dollars to companies that routinely violate labor laws. So kind of when looking with federal with acquisitions policy, particularly with the Pentagon, paying attention to kind of contractors who violate kind of like wage laws, overtime laws, workplace safety laws. And that was vote the House, again, easily voted to repeal that rule. And the other one was on methane regulations that had been passed last, that had been finally adopted last year by the Obama administration, kind of go, relating to fracking and the release of methane that happens uh, 
in fracking, which has been a major source of greenhouse gases, apart from just carbon emissions themselves, and which is one of the ways in which natural gas drilling, despite ta- being touted as environmentally, like less environmentally harmful than some other fossil fuels, has actually had a really negative impact, a really negative environmental impact because of the release of methane in the process. And methane acts faster over a shorter period than yeah, carbon dioxide. They're both carbon-based emissions. But yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, it's more powerful. Yeah, so those latter two are waiting passage in the Senate, and they'll pass in the Senate. And I don't know if there are any other bills that the Republicans are planning to take up, but they they still do have have a fairly wide wide purview given the number of late regulations that came in. I had thought that they were going to repeal the fiduciary rule, which was the Department of Labor's rule about how financial, your financial managers can't, basically, can't exploit you uh, and have to kind of act in your best interest, but I don't know if Trump's executive order from last week did that itself. It seemed like it was moving that process forward. Um, so I don't know if how those two relate to each other. I know the overtime regulations would also be subject to this, given the, that they came late in the in the legislative cycle. Yeah. So so like that, this, I think, presents sort of contrasting uh, situations where, on the one hand, they are moving quite fast to reverse some things. On the other hand. You know whether it's pulling back on the public mm-hmm. lands issue or uh, not getting their act together uh, on the Affordable Care Act repeal and replace that they thought they were going to have done pretty fast. Some areas they're moving forward. Some areas they're moving much more slowly than expected. But I, I think my my take on it is like can't let up at this point on on keeping an eye on that and trying to fight back on some of this stuff. Because um, as you said, on some of the things like stream protection rules, you were saying that there were some Democratic votes in favor yeah, of that. Were, and that's were... that's a huge problem. I mean, there's a limit to how much we can we can influence the Republicans on some of these issues, although the Chaffetz case shows that there is room for pressure there. Um, but there are also these Democrats that we need to get in line. We're never going to be able to get everyone on board, but we got to get some of them on board. Um, I have been stressing to folks, though, that like they should absolutely be calling their Republican senators and Republican members of the House if they have them. Um, don't don't call into other states unless it's uh, either you're calling the sponsor of a bill or they're the committee chair and you're calling them about the business of the committee. But if you have a Republican as your senator or representative, do call them. Uh, because uh, the only people that they're more terrified of than their sort of big business interests are their own voters. Mm -hmm. Um, Most Republicans tend to vastly overestimate how conservative their districts are or their states. Um, You can kind of correct some of that by calling in. Um, You know, it's not, there's, there are true believers who are never going to be swayed on anything. You can't do anything about that. But uh, a lot of them are are a lot more wishy-washy and are if they if they begin to sense that it's going to be an electoral risk for them they may back off of some of it um and i so i do think it is important to be calling those people jonathan oh i just want to note that i'd forgotten one of the resolutions of disapproval passed in the house at the end of last week which is one um making it easier to get guns and it repealed uh something that obama had issued in in the wake of the i believe it was the the newtown uh shooting which was making it kind of dealing with people who are on social who are and get benefits from the SSA and are not themselves mentally deemed mentally capable to handle their own affairs and making it so that they're not able to get guns. So people who've had power of attorney transferred to somebody yeah. else or whatever. Yeah. Okay. That's, and they rolled that back. Yes. So that's like the, the minimum standard of like, <laughs> well, we've already established this person probably can't be running their own affairs, but I guess they can buy a gun. gun. Yeah. So th- they did that as well with a few Republican defectors and a few democratic votes. Um, there, out of, so I, I tracked this last week. So out of the five resolutions of disapproval passed in the House, there was one Democrat, Henry Cuellar in Texas, who voted for all five. And then two Democrats, uh, Jim Costers in California and Colin Peterson in rural Minnesota, who had voted for all three. And uh, there were only there were two, de- two Republicans who had voted with Democrats the majority of the times in there. Ileana Ross Lettinen, who represents a part of uh, Miami-Dade County, uh, a fairly democratic district the democrats never really challenge and brian fitzpatrick who actually represents my home county and outside of philadelphia yeah i don't know what anybody's ever going to do with colin peterson though i mean the last time i was in his office he, as i always <laughs> tell people he had a painting of a blue dog up on his wall just to like really underscore the fact that he was a blue dog democrat and that was his whole thing and i, I just want to also build on a point that you were just making in terms of just keeping uh to use the to use the language of uh, Virginia 
Republican Dave Bratt when he was complaining um, about all of these women constantly being on his grill, asking when the next town hall is going to be, you should always be on the congressman's grill. Uh, that because at the end of the day, that like one of the things that you have as power, even if you, even if they know that you'll never vote for them, is you have the power of giving them bad press. Yeah, uh, and there was yeah, there was that congressman who like fled out the back or something from one of his town halls. Yeah, um, and the the, the kind he of had to be police escorted. Right, yeah. the, the sort of hilarious. The whole McClintock. Yeah. McClintock. The hilarious thing, though, to me is just that, you know, you you see all these like people who were actively involved in the sort of AstroTurf Tea Party movement or whatever being like, these are all paid protesters. They're all being bankrolled. None of this is real grassroots. And I'm just like, guys, just Just because that's what you guys did doesn't mean that everyone needs to be paid to show up to stuff. It's not like they even paid all of the Tea Party people to show up to things like they had big money behind organizing a lot of that. And the, the organization part and getting people out was done by people getting paid, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but the like actual people showing up, most of them were not getting paid, you know, and, and, and it's kind of funny, too, because George Soros, where is my check? <laughs> right. Um, I got mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw someone on Twitter uh, uh, had had tweeted out, um, you know, are we allowed to file uh, a class action suit on? Uh, uh, I, I, you know, about these accusations that we're all getting paid because none of us have been getting paid. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the other thing, Who too, is... Who is supposed to be paying me? I want my money now. Right. The other thing, too, is it's just, you know, Donald Trump genuinely managed to bring out, like, pretty huge rallies of people who were, you know, genuinely, like, they were coming out to see him. They were not getting paid. They were often paying for tickets to go see him mm-hmm. during the campaign, I think. Um, but his first event his launch event they paid actors Mm -hmm. and that's well known and after that he didn't have to do that but they did pay actors for that one and so again they keep on like projecting this assumption that everyone's getting paid to be like angry and upset about these angry angering and upsetting things i guess yeah and and the one thing particularly was annoying with in terms of getting your congress person bad press is that the one thing that's very good about that is that most people don't know anything about their congressperson. Most of them probably don't even know the name of the person, even despite voting for them every, every two years. Yeah. And one of the only times that they'll probably actually realize who the person's name is, if they see sustained bad press. Yep, 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 yep. Um, I, I do want to circle back, though, in, in, our, in our final minutes here. I want to circle back uh, a little bit toward the Affordable Care Act stuff that we were opening the show with. Um, and I know Greg has some some stuff that he wanted to cover as well on that point. Um, but kind of to go back to this this uh, point that we brought up initially in the context of the Cassidy bill and 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 broaden that out as well. Uh, you know, last week, Jonathan and I were talking at some length about the protests and what we think some kind of the opportunities there are and and you know some of the potential limitations to that. Um, where where are we at right now in terms of the like what we think the democratic strategy should be whether or not they're going to do that is a completely different story but it seemed like some of them were starting to have their resolve stiffened a little bit by those protests i think we're going to need to continue seeing more of those protests in order to do that um i think hopefully we'll maybe get clear of the annoying concern troll members of our own party who are like no you know we can't be heckling them and we can't go to their houses and their offices because then they won't like us and they'll we have to not be mean to them there there are our democrats and they're doing such a difficult job don't second guess them i think that's going away i think yeah. that attitude is yeah, fading a little bit back we're like yeah you lost this election and you have to pay yeah um because there were even people who were like saying you know that oh elizabeth warren like don't don't criticize her don't don't jump on her grill so to speak yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's faded a little bit because people are saying, oh, wait, actually, like she seems fine with these protests and has now started explicitly saying that the protests are useful. Like, which I think is, that's my perspective anyway, is Mm -hmm. that these protests like show them, okay, you're going to have, you're going to have people behind you if you, if you stick on that. But are, where are we at on the issue of like democratic cooperation versus just total obstruction or whatever? I, I think what I've been sensing is that a lot of people who thought like, oh, we're going to have to just make the best of this. It's happening regardless, which is not the camp that I was in, but I could see at least where they were coming from. Not that I agreed with them. I think a lot of them are starting to move over to saying like, no, you know what? Like this is as bad as 
as they said it was going to be, especially with these executive orders. And there's no reason to keep the government functioning smoothly if all of its smooth functioning is going to be toward terrible ends. So we might as well just screw up everything and obstruct everything. I know a lot of Democrats in office still don't want to do that, but, you know, they're they need to, like, reckon with the fact that obstruction didn't seem to actually do anything. Now, granted, there's some ideological differences there. You know, if you're trying to govern versus not trying to govern, <laughs> obstruction lends itself to one more readily than the other. But, um, you know, in other countries, it wouldn't even be a question because yeah. you just vote no. If you're in the opposition, you just right vote now. no. So, um, Greg, I want to go to you, though. Where are you at on this and other thoughts you wanted to bring up? Well, um, you know, I've, I've been out protesting a, a considerable amount, especially since I was last on the show. And um, I haven't been to an Affordable Care Act uh, repeal protest yet, uh, I think because of the sort of holding pattern that we were talking about, but I expect that there will be some. In fact, I think there was one that I missed in DC, um, and I expect that there will be some in the future. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% on board with just total obstructionism. And I think that you did bring, bring up a good point when you were talking about there's ideological differences between obstructionism for Republicans who don't want to govern because they think government is bad and obstructionism for Democrats who do want to govern because they think government is good. But if you're obstructing the dismantling of government, then that's also governing. At least Bingo. that's how I would maybe – explain it to somebody that was uh, a, a democrat that was reticent to just ob obstruct everything like yeah. yes the, you should obstruct right the democrats who are who are very moved by the well we said they couldn't do that so now we can't either yeah, those yeah uh, the, the one thing that's actually nice to see is the democrats finally deciding to and, and this really does relate to which nominations they are but to slow down the confirmation process because Democrats allowed some of them to get through very fast because most Demo almost all Democrats were perfectly fine. With John Kelly for DHS, uh, for John Mattis, uh, for the Pentagon, most of them were fine with Mike Pompeo, even though a lot of the majority of them voted against him. Only eight of them voted against cloture to advance, to kind of move it forward. So if you voted, if you voted yes on cloture, you were fine with him getting ultimate I, confirmation. I guess what? They're expecting it to be a split vote a tie vote with Pence breaking the tie on the DeVos, DeVos confirmation yeah, and, and for so education secretary. So down. now they're, yeah, they're slowing it down and they're threatening to hold the floor, I guess, yeah, and so try to filibuster. Yeah. Because with the Senate proceedings today, it was basically that like, today being Monday, if Democrats weren't yes, talking, Monday, February 6th, if Democrats weren't talking today uh, on Monday, then Mitch McConnell could then move to have the vote today at any time that pretty much because kind of, I think probably like kind of making a kind of call for unanimous consent to have the vote. And that's kind of the denial of unanimous consent to things is what's been happening more so with um, the, this current batch of, of nominations, which is Betsy DeVos for uh, education, Steve Mnuchin for treasury and Tom Price for HHS, where Democrats actually do entirely oppose the person. I think these are the only three so far where we actually have seen unanimous democratic opposition the tillerson vote didn't make sense to me though i mean they should they should have opposed everyone should have opposed him too and when he got confirmed what did they do immediately they said that uh companies no longer executive order companies no longer need to uh disclose what like yeah. foreign governments they like uh have uh, contracts with anymore, which right. was like very typical thing that you would think the former CEO of Exxon would do. Yeah, it was the, the resource extraction world they were talking about before, and the timing of that was really perfect in a way. Yeah. Uh, Greg, your closing thoughts here? Just keep on fighting the good fight. Don't give up the ship. I'm not. I've, I've been out. I've protested six times since inauguration. And I don't think I protested six times in my entire life. I helped somebody sign up for the ACA. That was a big thing. I mean, there are things that we can do in order to stem the tide. And even if we're ultimately unsuccessful, I don't I don't want this blood on my hands. Yeah, honestly. well, you have, to, you have to fight because as Jonathan mm -hmm. was saying last week so many times on the show, if you don't contest this and you don't physically and visibly contest it, then it seems like you think it's okay. Yeah. And yeah. then everyone will just go along with it. And I think I want to emphasize this because it, it's a development since the last episode. There, there are two, two points that I want to make here. 
and then we'll close out. One, uh, the polling improved dramatically on the issue of the executive orders. And by improved, I mean in the direction of this is bad. Um, Because there were some flash polls that happened like within a day or two before people had really had a chance to like think about it and see these protests. And they generally were like, yeah, I don't know. The executive orders seem fine. Within about a span of a week, CNN released a poll where it had moved dramatically kind of in the opposite direction. Um, And you either had you had a plurality basically saying this is bad. And then a, you know, a kind of smaller faction that added up to a majority saying, well, I don't know if it's bad, but it's definitely not accomplishing the security goal that they're promising that it will accomplish. Uh, So that, I think, is like showing that there is some power to these protests at very minimum in saying you're not alone, like people do oppose this. And if you're not sure about this issue, yes, there is disagreement on this. There is not unanimous agreement from everyone that this is the direction we want to go. Second point that I want to make, which we did not talk about on the show last week. You know, I was talking to some folks, uh, you know, older like Gen X or whatever, who had been involved with, you know, the Iraq war protests and Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, in 2003. And, um, you know, San Francisco, Boston, New York, that sort of thing. There were some pretty large protests, but pretty consistently the TV would, you know, coverage, whether it's local or national or CNN or whatever, would kind of like, you know, either find the like one drunk hippie guy who was just like incoherently like stumbling around and couldn't form a sentence about why he was opposing it. You know, they certainly weren't talking to that guy when he was sober. Right. Um, you know, or they would like you know, say, well, you know, here's five protesters out of 5,000 or whatever, you know, tight crop in on them. Here's Mm -hmm. what they had to say and make that look like it's the entire protest and then go and be like, and here's five guys from the exurbs at their American Legion post or whatever. This is an example someone was giving that they remembered from 2003. Um, The difference I think that we're, but now and then, I think the biggest difference is everyone now has basically a camera phone in their pocket Mm -hmm. and a, a social media account that allows them direct access to their grandma. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's not just us talking to ourselves like millennials or whatever. It's that like, I can post a photo from the protest and I know that, you know, my dad's cousin's wife, Mm -hmm. you know, is going to see it in this state. I know that my grandma who listens to this radio show and follows me on Facebook, that she's going to see those photos. Mm -hmm. She's going to see the photos from all of her friends who went to the protests. You can, they have to show these protests on TV, they have to show, you know, the overhead shots and things like that and, and not just crop it out because, uh, that is, uh, that is no longer a debatable point. Uh, you know, or at least you're going to be able to like the fact that they have to say there's all these paid protesters means that they're aware that there are all these protesters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that was the point that I wanted to make. Uh, we are out of time now though. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming back to talk about health policy with us. Thanks for having me, as always. And Jonathan, thanks for being here in studio. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email afdradio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.